Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, book five, chapter eight, War and Peace. How do you think things are between Maya and Andre? Any predictions on their relationship? At the end of the chapter, Andre dives into the letter from Billabin to escape from his obsession, obsessive negative thoughts, presumably concerning his wife's death. Do you think he will ever recover from this tragedy? Do you think his feelings are related to his wife or more to his own feelings of guilt? And what do you think about Andre's apparent disinterest in the war now? What do you think is driving this? I really loved that bit of the um, chapter where uh, about the statue of the angel and how Andre saw in it the same expression of what have you done to me as he saw in Lisa. Warren Kovofi says, As Tolstoy described the upturned lip as if the statue was about to smile, I seriously expected it to also have a mustache. <laughs> yeah, I actually had the same thought. Starfire Galaxy said, Yesterday I said I wanted to see how the baby was doing, and I almost regret saying that since the baby hasn't been doing well. Poor little Prince Nikolai. Did he name his son after his father? Yeah, I guess he probably did. Uh, Mario and Andre are grieving, especially with guilt, overtaking Andre's thoughts since he wasn't there to be with his wife during her last months, weeks and days. Things will be tense and emotional for a couple of days, given the quick resolve with these characters we've seen so far, but I don't think it'll last forever. Yeah, I think that's the kind of thing that just sticks with you, right? For life. Um, Starfire Galaxy also said, it depends on how much it'll affect his son, I think. Oh, this is in response to the question. Um, do you think he'll recover from the tragedy? I don't think, you just don't recover from that, do you? I think you just fold it into your life and and then carry on from there. Twisted Every Way says, Well, Andre certainly has seemed to change. Now his father is out drumming up war recruits while he has no interest in the war anyway. He definitely seems to be in quite a funk, probably a depression after what's happened to his wife and with his child now being sick. I'm glad he got his own estate. I wonder if he will remarry. Um, yeah, it's hard to imagine him being kind of interested in anything um, in in that kind of a state. Depression. And rightfully so. But you can't imagine him becoming sort of passionate about the war or anything like that at a time like this. Let's read chapter 9. It goes like this. Bilibin was now at army headquarters in a diplomatic capacity, and though he wrote in French and used French jests and French idioms, he described the whole campaign with a fearless self-censure and self-derision, genuinely Russian. Bilibin wrote that the obligation of diplomatic discretion tormented him, and he was happy to have in Prince Andre a reliable correspondent to whom he could pour out the bile he had accumulated at the sight of all that was being done in the army. The letter was old, having been written before the battle at Prisuch Ilyao. Since the, I didn't say that right at all. Prusich Ilyao. Since the day of our brilliant success at Austerlitz, wrote Bilibin, as you know, my dear prince, I never leave headquarters. I have certainly acquired a taste for war, and it is just as well for me. What I have seen during these last three months is incredible. I begin at Ovo, the enemy of the human race, as you know, attacks the Prussians, and the Prussians are our faithful allies who have only betrayed us three times in three years. 
We take up their cause, but it turns out that the enemy of the human race pays no heed to our fine speeches in his rude and savage way, throws himself on the Prussians without giving them time to finish the parade they had begun, and in two twists of the hand he breaks them into smithereens and installs himself in the palace at Potsdam. I most ardently desire, writes the King of Prussia to Bonaparte, that your majesty should be received and treated in my palace in a manner agreeable to yourself, and in so far as circumstances allowed I have hastened to take all steps to that end, may I have succeeded. The Prussian generals pride themselves on being polite to the French and lay down their arms at the first demand. The head of the garrison at Glogau, with ten thousand men, asks the King of Prussia what he is to do if he is summoned to surrender. All this is absolutely true. In short, hoping to settle matters by taking up a warlike attitude, it turns out that we have landed ourselves in war, and what is more, in war on our own frontiers with and for the King of Prussia. We have everything in perfect order, only one little thing is lacking, namely a commander-in-chief. As it was considered that the Austerlitz' success might have been more decisive had the commander-in-chief not been so young, all our octogenarians were reviewed, and of Prozovsky and Kamensky, the latter was preferred. The general comes to us, Suvorov-like, in a kibitka, and is received with acclamations of joy and triumph. On the 4th, the first courier arrives from Petersburg. The males are taken to the field marshal's room, for he likes to do everything himself. I am called in to help sort the letters and to take those meant for us. The field marshal looks on and waits for letters addressed to him. We search, but none are found. The field marshal grows impatient and sets to work himself and finds letters from the emperor to Count T, Prince V, and others. Then he bursts into one of his wild furies and rages at everyone and everything, seizes the letters, opens them, and reads those from the emperor addressed to others. Ah, so that's the way they treat me. No confidence in me? Ah, ordered to keep an eye on me. Very well, then. Get along with you. So he writes the famous order of the day to General Burn, uh, Benningson. I am wounded and cannot ride, and consequently cannot command the army. You have brought your army corps to, corps to Pultusk, routed. Here it is exposed, and without fuel or forage, so something must be done. And as you yourself reported to Count Buxhauden yesterday, you must think of retreating to the frontier, to our frontier, which do, do today. From all my riding... He writes to the Emperor, I have got a saddle saw which, coming after all my previous journeys, quite prevents my riding and commanding so vast an army. So I have passed on to command to the general next in seniority, Count Boxhauden, having sent him my whole staff and all that belongs to it, advising him, if there is a lack of bread, to move farther into the interior of Prussia, for only one day's ration of bread remains, and in some regiments none at all. As reported by the division commanders, Osterman and Sedmortsky, and all that the peasants had has been eaten up. All that the peasants had has been eaten up. I myself will remain in hospital at Ostrolenka till I recover. In regard to which I humbly submit my report with the information that is that if the army remains in its present bivouac another fortnight, there will not be a healthy man left in it by spring. Grant leave to retire to his country seat to an old man who is already in any case dishonoured by being unable to fulfil the great and glorious task for which he has chosen. I shall await your most gracious permission here in hospital, that I may not have to play the part of a secretary rather than commander in the army. 
My removal from the army does not produce the slightest stir. A blind man has left it. There are thousands such as I in Russia. The field marshal is angry with the emperor and he punishes us all. Isn't it logical? This is the first act. Those that follow are naturally increasingly interesting and entertaining. After the field marshal's departure, it appears that we are within sight of the enemy and must give battle. Bucks Howden is commander-in-chief by seniority. But General Benningson does not quite see it, more particularly as it is he and his corps who are within sight of the enemy, and he wishes to profit by the opportunity to fight a battle on his own hand, as the Germans say. He does so. This is the Battle of Pultusk, which is considered a great victory, but in my opinion has nothing, was nothing of the kind. We civilians, as you know, have a very bad way of deciding whether a battle is won or lost. Those who retreat after a battle have lost it, is what we say. Those who retreat after a battle have lost it, is what we say. And according to that, it is we who lost the battle at Pultusk. In short, we retreat after the battle, but send a courier to Petersburg with news of a victory, and General Benningson, hoping to receive from Petersburg the post of commander-in-chief as a reward for his victory, does not give up the command of the army in ge to General Boxhowden. During this interregnum, we begin a very original and interesting series of manoeuvres. Our aim is no longer as it should be to avoid or attack the enemy, but solely to avoid General Buxhowden, who, by right of seniority, should be our chief. So energetically do we pursue that this aim, that after crossing an unfordable river, we burn the bridges to separate ourselves from our enemy, who at the moment is not Bonaparte, but Buxhowden. General Buxhowden was all but attacked and captured by the superior enemy force as a result of one of these manoeuvres that enabled us to escape him. Buxhowden pursues us, and we scuttle... He hardly crosses the river to our side before we recross to the other. At last our enemy Bucks Howden catches us and attacks. Both generals are angry and the result is a challenge on Bucks Howden's part and an epileptic fit in Benningson's. But at that critical moment, the courier who carried the news of our victory at Poltusk to Ber Petersburg returns, bringing our appointment as commander-in-chief and our first foe Bucks Howden is vanquished. We can now turn our thoughts to the second Bonaparte, but as it turns out, just at that moment, a third enemy arises before us, namely the orthodox Russian soldiers, loudly demanding bread, meat, biscuits, fodder, and whatnot. The stores are empty, the roads impassable, the orthodox begin looting, and in a way of which our last campaign give you no idea. Half the regiments form bands and scour the countryside and put everything to fire and sword, the inhabitants are totally ruined, the hospitals overflow with the sick, and famine is everywhere. Twice the marauders even attack our headquarters and the commander-in-chief has to ask for a battalion to disperse them. During one of these attacks they carried off my empty portmanteau and my dressing gown. The emperor proposes to give all commanders of divisions the right to shoot marauders but I much fear this will oblige one half the enemy, the army to shoot the other. At first Prince Andre read with his eyes only, but after a while, in spite of himself, although he knew how far it was safe to trust Bilibin, what he had read began to interest him more and more. When he had read thus far, he crumpled the letter up and threw it away. It was not what he had read that vexed him, but the fact that the life out there in which he had now no part could perturb him. He shut his eyes, rubbed his forehead, as if to rid himself of all interest in what he had read, and listened to what was passing in the nursery suddenly. He thought he heard a strange noise through the door. He was seized with the alarm, just, uh, with alarm, lest something should have happened to the child while he was reading the letter. 
He went on tiptoe to the nursery door and opened it. Just as he went in, he saw that the nurse was hiding something from him, and with a scared look, and that Princess Mary was no longer by the cot. My dear, he heard what seemed to him her despairing whisper behind him. As often happens after long sleepless and long sleeplessness and long anxiety, he was seized by an unreasoning panic. It occurred to him that the child was dead. All that he saw and heard seemed to confirm this terror. All is over, he thought, and a cold sweat broke out on his forehead. He went to the cot in confusion, sure that he would find it empty and that the nurse had been hiding the dead baby. He drew the curtain aside and for some time was frightened. Restless eyes could not find the baby. At last he saw him. The rosy boy had tossed about till he lay across the bed with his head lower than the pillow and was smacking his lips in his sleep and breathing evenly. Prince Andrew was as glad to find the boy like that as if he had already lost him. He bent over him and, as his sister had taught him, tried with his lips whether the child was still feverish. The soft forehead was moist. Prince Andre touched the head with his hand. Even the hair was wet, so profusely had the child perspired. He was not dead, but evidently the crisis was over and he was convalescent. Prince Andre longed to snatch up, to squeeze, to hold his heart, this helpless little creature, but dared do not do so. He stood over him, gazing at his head and at the little arms and legs which showed under the blanket. He heard a rustle behind him, and a shadow appeared under the curtain of the cot. He did not look around, but still gazing at the infant's face, listened to his regular breathing. The dark shadow was Princess Mary, who had come up to the cot with noiseless steps, lifted the curtain, and dropped it again behind her. Prince Andre recognised her without looking and held out his hand to her. She pressed it. He has perspired, said Prince Andre. I was coming to tell you so. The child moved slightly in his sleep, smiled and rubbed his forehead against the pillow. Prince Andre looked at his sister. In the dim shadow of the curtain, her luminous eyes shone more brightly than usual from the tears of joy that were in them. He, she leaned over to her brother and kissed him, slightly catching the curtain of the cot. Each made the other a warning gesture and stood still in the dim light beneath the curtain, as if not wishing to leave that seclusion where they three were shut off from all the world. Prince Andre was the first to move away, ruffling his hair against the muslin of the curtain. Yes, this is the one thing left me now, he said with a sigh. All right, there we go, Prince Andre. Well, the one thing left for him now is his little boy. That's kind of cute. All right, have your say about it over at the subreddit. What did you think of Billabin's letter? Did you take much of it in? I definitely did not. All right, thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.